Well, good morning, Miss Dubasonic. Come here one second. So, this is Kristen. You get to hear her sing every Sunday. She's thinking, what's going on right I now? Am. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> but she grew up here in this church. Her sister's sitting right over there. And they were here. I mean, I can remember them little kids growing up all the way up through the youth group. And for a long time, it was just them two coming. Their grandmother brought them. They were, or they, once they drove, they drove themselves here. They were faithful all these years. And then today, whenever we did the offering, her dad, John, came down and prayed for the offering, who's now a deacon in the church. And God's done, I mean, y'all's parents are some of the greatest servants in this fellowship. What I'm saying is, is that when she's singing and John's praying, it's a testimony to God's faithfulness. There's a story being told that you might not know, but that years of faithfulness, God's faithful. And there was a time where we couldn't see what God was going to do, but look at what He's done. Amen. You're free. We love you. And the point I want you to see this morning is we're going to be in John chapter 18. And John 18 is a, is a perfect illustration of how God is always doing more than one thing at one time. There's, there's always these amazing levels to the work that our amazing God is doing. And so, when we come into church, we come into church and we, we, we know our life and our situation and our, our challenges or our struggles or our joys and our victories. But what we don't realize is that God's writing a story in all the people's lives in the room simultaneously. Things are happening that we don't know. And there are, there are these little glory moments all over the place that are happening that are, that are all occurring at the same time. And then at the same time that's happening, God's ministering and speaking to all of us together corporately. And so on one level, He's doing something in your life personally, then corporately He's doing something in our lives, and then globally He's doing something around the world. And so everywhere you walk and everywhere you go, just remember that there's more going on than what you know of and what's going on in you. And, and, and realize that as you intersect with people's lives, your story becomes part of their story. And God's working at the very same time. So John chapter 18 is one of the, these amazing places in Scripture where two men's stories get woven together. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these two we're going to look at this big story and these two stories within the story and we're going to see how, they're, how they, God's weaving them together and how God's bringing similar things into their lives because of their proximity. And I want you to understand that because of our proximity, so God's writing a story in your life and we come together, but because of our proximity together, He's weaving certain things into all of our lives because you're hearing... The same thing this morning. You're, you're in the same room experiencing the same things, but yet they're different stories. 
John 18. If you have your listening guide, we're going to start with scene one, which is going to be the courtroom. The courtroom. Now remember that several weeks ago, we jumped into the King's Cross, this last section of the Gospel of John. And we dealt with the first 11 verses, the arrest of Jesus in the garden. And so Jesus has just been arrested. And they've just, uh, the, the, the cavalry has just shown up with the torches and taken him from the garden. And everything that we're going to talk about this morning happens during the night, this same night. So look at verse 12. John chapter 18, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. Now remember, a Roman cohort showed up. We're not talking about what you see in the movies. We're not talking about six or eight soldiers. We're talking about a minimum of 200. It's at least 200 soldiers have shown up. And they're accompanied by the, the officers of the Jews. So these would be the Jewish temple police. And the Jewish temple police are there because they are there to ensure that what they need to happen happens, as is going to unfold in a few moments. And so they're, they're there with the, with the Romans. The Romans are there because they want to keep peace. The Jews are there because they want to keep peace. But everybody wants to keep peace the way they want peace to be. Verse 13. And they led him away to Annas first. And he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, let's think for a moment. Who is this Caiaphas? And what in the world does verse 14 mean? What does that mean? That he had advised the Jews that it would be expedient or better, that it would be better that one man should die for the people. Now, in order to sort of get a handle on this, Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas is his father-in-law. Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. And being the high priest among the Jews is like being the president of the United States among us. So no matter how long you've been out of office, you will forever be referenced or referred to as Mr. President. Even if you're not currently serving, you're Mr. President. So President Clinton, President Obama, President Bush, they're not president anymore, but they're still referred to as president. Well, the same thing occurred amongst the Jews with the high priest. Annas was once the high priest, and so he had a lot of clout. And... It's a long, sordid story that we won't get into, but now his son-in-law is the high priest, and so they take him to, to Annas. Annas then brings him to Caiaphas. So the way to get to the bottom of this story is we have to remember way back, seems like years ago, when we were in John chapter 11. These verses will come up on the screen. John 11, 
Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And people started to believe in him, obviously. I mean, if you can raise someone from the dead, hey, I think I might go with that guy. John 11, verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, that's not Mary, uh, Jesus' mom, but that's Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. Verse 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, well, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they were afraid that everyone was going to believe in Jesus. To them, the worst thing that could possibly happen would be the world would all be converted to Christianity. Now, it's kind of crazy that we're we're talking about the religious leaders here. And their big fear is that Jesus is going to become the Savior that He is. And their fear is based on the fact that they don't want to lose their position. They don't want to lose their prominence. And what we need to stop and and think about right here is the fact that at some point, for every single one of us, following God is going to cost us something. There's going to come a moment where to follow God it's not going to be the easy thing to do. To obey Him is not going to be the popular thing to do. And when that moment comes, are we going to trust Him? Even though we can't see how this is going to work out or how His principles are going to apply in our situation? Or are we going to become fearful? And are we going to take matters into our own hands? And are we going to try to manage and cling to our position or whatever it is we're trying to hold on to. So that's the situation that they're in. Look at verse 49. And then one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now here's the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of They are the the, the most powerful amongst the Jews. And Caiaphas says to them, you know nothing. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people? Here he is prophesying the gospel and he has no idea. And not that the whole nation should perish. The Bible goes on to say in verse 53, then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. So see, the turning point was really Lazarus. That was the the mark in Jesus' life that they couldn't overcome. They couldn't look past. But now, prior to that, when, when the Sanhedrin are discussing this Jesus and the fact that he rose Lazarus from the dead and that people were following Him and believing in Him. And 
beginning to threaten their world and their livelihood. It was Caiaphas who took things to a whole new level. I mean, they were just talking about maybe imprisonment or possibly beating him or warning him or maybe, you know, loading him in an Uber and taking him five towns over and dropping him off. Or I don't know, but Caiaphas says, well, you don't know anything. Maybe we should kill him. What? This would be the equivalent of a Baptist business meeting where there's a problem with someone in the church and someone raised their hand and says, why don't we just kill him? Huh? Kill him? What's happening? And what I want you to begin to see here is that in the midst of this story, fear has crept in. The fear that something's going to slip away. The fear that we're going to lose something. The fear that, that what we hold so dearly to is going to get out of our, our hands. And so fear will drive you to do Things you never imagined you would do. A fearful person is capable of things they never dreamed that they would do. The religious ruling body, the leader of that body, has in such a bold and condemning way said to his fellow priests, if you will, We'll just kill him. That's what we'll do. So that's Caiaphas. Back to John 18. Verse 19. So they lead him to Caiaphas. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Now remember, you'll, you'll do things you never imagined you would do. At this point, he's only said something he probably never imagined he would say. Verse 20, Then Jesus answered him and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said. Indeed, they know what I've said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? I wonder. I wonder if Caiaphas. Ever foresaw a time when he would be interrogating another person, another religious person, maybe somebody that you don't necessarily agree with, but that, that you would resort to physical violence, that there would 
there would come a, a, a moment in his life as the high priest where, where his behavior would have degenerated into a scene out of the Godfather. Fear. And he's using physical violence as he's plotting to kill an innocent man who happens to be the God of the universe. You see the power of fear? Do you see what fear can cause us to do? Do you see how fear can derail our lives? It's almost, it's almost unbelievable. The story would make so much more sense if they arrested Jesus and they took him out into the wilderness and gave him to a, a group of bandits and this began to happen. No. We're talking about the most respected, most religious, most learned people on the planet. But they're afraid. Afraid. Scene two. So scene one is the courtyard. Simultaneously, at the same time, we go to scene two. The courtyard. We got the courtroom and the courtyard. So in the courtyard, we go back to verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We assume that disciple's John, but we don't know for sure. Now that that disciple was known to the high priest, and he went in with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Over three years, he's been with Jesus. He spent virtually every moment of every day with Jesus. He's, he has watched Jesus perform all the miracles that he's performed. He's heard all the teaching that Jesus has taught. He has been impacted by Jesus in a way that is really hard to comprehend. I mean, Jesus, he's been face to face. He's walked together and had, had personal, intimate conversations with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has time and time again just illustrated his, his longing and his desire to continue with Jesus and to be close with Jesus and he said some of the craziest things we have recorded in the gospel, but he's also said many of the greatest things we have recorded in the gospel. And through all of that, here we are, hours after the garden, 
And already, when asked, are you one of his followers? No, I'm not. Why? Fear. He's afraid. He's afraid of what he's going to lose. He's afraid of what is going to change. He's afraid of what he doesn't understand. He's afraid. In John chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus predicted what was about to happen in John 18. And he said, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So you know this story. Peter just said, oh, there's no way that's ever going to happen. You're not going to die for me. I'll die for you. Nobody's going to kill you. I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, well, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Well, that's time number one. You see, fear not only will cause you to do things you never imagined you would do, but it can cause you to forget what you know and to lose sight of who you are. Peter, my goodness, think of the things he knows. Think of the things he's seen. Sometimes people get into uncertain times and seasons in their life and they they go into those times with confidence because well I I've, I've been in church for this duration of time and and so I I know a lot about God Peter knew a lot about God Peter had seen a lot of things with his own eyes but fear came underneath all those things and began to erode him away. Then in verse 25, John 18, the Bible says, Now Peter stood and warmed himself, and therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Number two. Verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter had cut off. Just that night, just a few hours ago. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now what I want to do So I want to talk about Caiaphas and Peter. I want us to think about these two individuals. I want us to think about what's happening here and how it affects them and how God can instruct us about our lives and moving forward. Because there's similarities between these two. Oftentimes when people talk about this chapter in Scripture, they they see these two individuals as polar opposites. I see commonalities. The first commonality I see is that they both had self-confidence. They both had self-confidence. 
Peter. He's the one who said, well, I'll never leave you. I won't deny you. I'll die for you. His confidence had become a problem for him. The first thing I would point out to you about Peter is that Peter shouldn't be here right now. Peter shouldn't have even been there to be asked if he was a follower of Jesus in the first place. Because if you remember back when Jesus was arrested in the garden, back in verse 8 of this same chapter, when they came to arrest him, Jesus answered, and he said, I have told you that I am he, therefore if you seek me, let these go their way. He said, let my disciples go their way. He didn't want his disciples wrapped up in all this. And yet, where is Peter? Wrapped up in all this. Instead of saying, Lord, I trust you. Look at all the things I've seen you do. Look at all the ways I've seen you move. Look at all of the obstacles I've seen you overcome. Look at all of the things that you've taught me and instructed me. Look at all of those things. I may not understand why they're arresting you. I may not understand what is about to happen, but I trust you based on all the things that I've seen. But not when you're fearful. And self-confidence comes in and makes you susceptible to the downfall of fear. You see, that self-confidence is what caused Peter to pull his sword out when they're surrounded by 200 armed soldiers. The fisherman. You know, he's a real ninja. He misses the guy's head and cuts his ear off. Like, you know, you never seen Chuck Norris miss and cut somebody's ear off. But there's Peter. Not sure what he was thinking, but he was, he was confident. You see, when you, when you have self-confidence... You start swinging swords around when you're afraid. You start rushing into places you aren't supposed to be because you don't know what else to do. Unfortunately, a lot of people in our day and age, a lot of people who claim the name of Christ, maybe outwardly and certainly subtly believe that self-confidence is a good thing. The way of the world is to discover your own strength. That's the world's philosophy. The way of the Lord is to discover His strength in our weakness. Self-confidence is not a virtue in the gospel. Not at all. God-confidence is a virtue in the gospel. Peter was self-confident. Caiaphas was also self-confident. Caiaphas was the guy who always landed on his feet. He was the guy who always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. He had worked his way into the right relationships. He had gotten himself into the right position. I mean, he was in such a position of great power. And he had accomplished so much. Believe me, he was going to do whatever it takes to protect that. He wasn't about to allow some carpenter from Nazareth to come in and mess him up. You can see his self-confidence in the way he talks to the other Sanhedrin. 
where he basically says, are you all idiots? We'll just kill him. You know, the average high priest would serve one term. It would be three to four years. Caiaphas, when he met Jesus back in chapter 11 of the book of John, was in his 15th year as high priest. He served 18 years in that position. Basically the equivalent of five terms. He was a very successful person who had manipulated and orchestrated things through his self-confidence. He was a very, very competent person. And so they both had self-confidence in common. But then secondly, they both lacked self-discipline. They lacked self-discipline. Think about Peter. I mean, I could give you a lot of illustrations of his lack of self-discipline. Peter falls asleep in the garden over and over again when Jesus asks him to pray. I mean, come on, Peter. You can't stay awake for a few minutes. You know, all four Gospels record the account of Peter's denial of Jesus. And Matthew's Gospel tells us how the servant girl who was working the door to the courtyard who let Peter in with John, how did she figure out that he was one of Jesus' disciples? In Matthew chapter 26, here's what the Bible says. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. See, he didn't have any self-discipline, because what I'm saying is, Peter, why are you talking? What are you saying? You're not supposed to be there, and you're certainly not supposed to be talking. Because you're a Galilean, which means you sound like a hick. That's what that means. And when you're talking, everybody knows that you don't belong there because of the accent that you have. Now, anybody would know that, and yet your speech betrays you? Be quiet. Peter shouldn't have said anything. Two other Gospels record that when they asked Peter the third time, are you his disciple? That Peter began to swear. Oh, there's a good move, Peter. You see the lack of discipline? Discipline grows in the soil of dependence. You see, the enemy, you you see how this is all linking together? The enemy of dependence is self-confidence. A self-confident person always leads to, spiritually, a lack of self-discipline. Always. Because discipline grows in the soil of dependence. And guess who is least likely to be dependent? The self-confident. 
You see, the self-confident person has a marginal need for prayer. A marginal need to study the Word, to be dependent on God, to look for God, to look to God for guidance because they're self-confident, because they're good, because they're smart, because they're able to make things work in their own way. And so the tendency, you see, you start out with a little self-confidence, you end up lacking self-discipline, and trouble's going to follow. Caiaphas, how do I know he lacked self-discipline? Well, let's just think about who this person is. Here is the high priest. Not just some random high priest, the high priest of the Jews, the high priest of God's people. The priests were the administrators of the knowledge of God to the nations, to the world. They were the, the Old Testament conduit outside of the prophets where God related His Word and His will to the nations, to the world. They were designed by God to be the mediators between Him and His people. And yet Caiaphas completely lost sight of his charge, his calling. What's clear is that he didn't much care about the truth. What he cared about was expediency. What he cared about was fixing his problem. What he cared about was getting rid of what was making him fearful. What he cared about was not losing his position. And so rather than devotion and discipline, he was just filled with impulse. He was filled with reactions. He was filled with protecting and clinging to. So these two men, both religious in their own right, the high priest, the chief, maybe, if you will, disciple. Two stories simultaneously happening. God doing a work in both of their lives individually as they share proximity together. And they face the reality that all of us in this room are going to face. That moment when it costs something to follow God. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. We have to, we have to think about our level of self-confidence. Do we lack discipline? If we do, what is going to happen when trouble comes in this world and suddenly fear has an opportunity to creep in? How are we going to respond when, when our, our position, our, our comfort, our possessions, our whatever it is, is threatened? Our reputation is in jeopardy. Are we going to trust God and follow Him regardless of the uncertainty that we face? Regardless of our inability to see through to the other side? Are we going to continue to just Trust Him and follow Him? Even though the path looks scary? Or will we allow fear to take hold? 
and then take matters into our own hands. See, both of these men took matters into their own hands. They, they lost sight of the fact that God was writing the story. So let's talk for a minute about fear. Because I think fear plays a big role in my life and in your life. I think this morning, if we're honest, every single one of us in this room has something we could be afraid of. There are things looming out there. Maybe some of you are in the midst of them right now. And you're scared to death. And you're not sure what's going to happen. And you see things that, that you want or things that you feel like you deserve or things that you feel like you've earned or things that you feel like you have the right to starting to slip out of your hand. And you're going to have to make a decision. How does fear play into our failures and our defeats? What happens when the kingdom of heaven clashes with the kingdom of self? What happens when there are things going on around us and we don't like it? We don't like what's going on with our children or in our family or with my job or at my church or I don't like it. Why don't you like it? What's, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid you're going to lose? The kingdom of self is driven by, it's driven by fear. It's driven by the, the fear of man. It's driven by the fear of discomfort, the fear of difficulty. Some of us just, just get fearful when things get difficult because we, we just panic. Some of us fear failure. And so when, when, when we don't see things begin to go the way we think they ought to go, we, we, we start to get overwhelmed by fear because we're so afraid to fail. Some just fear not getting their way. Is it any wonder that fear is playing such a huge role in so many people's lives today? When we live in a time that is unlike any other time in the degree to which so many feel entitled to so much. Entitlement is the breeding ground for fear. Because I deserve. I deserve to be comfortable. I des I've worked hard. I deserve to, to, to know what's around the next corner. I, I deserve for you to treat me a certain way. I I've earned it. The world is a harsh place. And yet on one hand, none of us came in here this morning thinking, well, 
I'm sure that everything in my future is going to go the way I predict it's going to go. None of us would say that. And yet, we live daily as if it is. I thought a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. I, I think that, in fact, I know that only the fear of God has the power to overwhelm all these horizontal fears that come into our life and capture our heart and lead us astray. Only the fear of God. Here's the principle. I want you to understand about fear. If God doesn't own the fear of our hearts. He will not own the practical direction of our lives. So the application would be. Does God own the practical direction of your life? Is your life going the direction that. God wants it to go. Are you this morning living in accordance with all that you know that God has called you to do? Or are there things that you're resisting, pushing back against? And this fear began to creep in. Why are we all so susceptible to fear? I think we're probably most equal in our susceptibility to be fearful. Why is that? Because God hardwired us to be fearful. We're made that way. He designed us for a life shaped by the fear of Him. That's the whole point of the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Proverbs 9 verse 10. That's the whole point. Is that he made us to be ruled by fear. But not the fear of other things. The fear of him. And when we fear him above all else. That fear conquers all the other horizontal fears. That lead us astray. Boy it's easy to say that. But that's not oftentimes what we experience. What we see playing out around us. What we oftentimes see around us is what I would say is insanity. Let's look at this definition. Definition of insanity. Well, that's one definition of insanity. Insanity. To compromise God's principles in an effort to retain God's blessing. To compromise God's principles in an effort to retain God's blessing. What does that mean? Well, let me help you. Who would compromise God's principles to retain God's blessing? How would that work? Well, that would be the, 
That would be the parents that were so overjoyed when the baby arrived. And they, they, they wrapped up the child and take the child home and, and, and even stood in front of the church and dedicated the child to the Lord. And they had all these ideas in their head of what was going to be and how it was going to work out. But somewhere along the line, things started to get off track. And, and the parents internal, maybe one of the parents, maybe both of the parents, their internal fear of rejection began to override their sensibilities and they started to desire the acceptance of their child and so the relationship began to develop this unnatural component of friendship. They wanted their kids to like them. They wanted their kids to accept them. And it worked out okay for a little while, but then comes a time when trouble hits. And that relationship that you've clung so tightly to for so long starts slipping out of your hand. And so oftentimes what happens is parents begin to compromise the principles of Scripture to maintain the blessing, to hold on to the relationship. They, they're so afraid that the, the, the child is going to leave the nest, that the child is going is to go astray, that the child is going to go and do, that they begin to compromise in order to keep the relationship. And what happens is the child becomes the driver of the moral fiber of the family. That's insanity. It's the girl who grows up in church and, and all her life growing up, she was committed to doing things God's way. She has journals where she wrote about the husband God would provide for her and all of the qualities that she could see in his life. And she dreamed about this day that would come when she would receive God's blessing. But as that day began to, to, to pause, it began to linger. And all of her friends started getting married. She started to, to fill with fear because she was still single and everyone else around her was getting married. And so she, rather than, than pause and wait and trust God, she takes matters into her own hands. And so she begins to work to find a husband. And then she finds one. And it doesn't take long before she realizes in that marriage she's got to compromise the principles of God in order to maintain that relationship. Because in order for there to be harmony in that relationship, it's always pushing the limits of what she ever thought she would do. But it's her husband. What else can she do? It's the man who started out with all the right intentions. Who wanted to just provide for his family and, and, and give them a good and safe, wonderful life that they could live together. But he began to lose sight of the goal. And along the way, they, as a family, began to pick up 
debt that they shouldn't pick up. They began to pick up hobbies and toys and things that, and they, they, they move in a house they can't afford. They drive cars they can't pay for. They, they, they start doing things they, on the weekends that they shouldn't be doing. And then one day, there's trouble in the checking account. And there's not enough in the bank to maintain the lifestyle that we've created. And so what happens is we start to jeopardize, we start to compromise the principles of God. So, so we, we start taking away from what we're supposed to be giving to the Lord and we're using it for something else. And then it becomes, then we start having to get another job or to work harder or to do this or to do that. And then pretty soon, somewhere down along the road, there's this moment of reckoning and there's the, this broken man with tears running down his face in the realization that he's forsaken the thing he loved the most. He wasn't there when his kids grew up. Because he had to work all the time to pay for all the stuff. And he's on his deathbed. And he's weeping as he's holding his pastor's hand and he's saying... If only I would have known what really mattered. But I compromised the principles of God trying to hang on to the blessing. That's insanity. It never works. You can't compromise God's principles and think you're going to hold on to His blessing. It won't work. But fear drives people to do it every single day. So what happened to these two men? They had so much in common. They were in the same place at the same time, experiencing so many of the same things. God was working in their lives. They had two very different outcomes. Peter. Three times he, he boasted about how he would never leave the Lord or how he would always be there for him. Three times he fell asleep in the garden. And three times that one night he denied Jesus. My goodness. And what you would think and what I would think Peter, man, you blew it. You're out. But thankfully, God's not the baseball God. You get more than three strikes with Him. Amen? Peter, you're not out. You're not out. You're down, but you're not out. And you're not just going to get another swing of the bat. But God's going to give you a whole new bat. He's going to start all over with you. He's going to come to you three chapters later. And He's going he's to 
as the resurrected Christ, He's going to seek you out to have a personal conversation with you. And He's going to restore all three of these denials in John chapter 21. He's going to say, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He's going to give Peter an opportunity to repent of his fear and to lay his fear down and to understand that God's always trustworthy. He's going to restore Peter. He's going to He's going to make Peter the one commissioned to preach the first ser- the very first sermon in the book of Acts in the new church. Peter's going to be the one that stands up and boldly proclaims the gospel. But listen, his self-confidence is gone at that point. And his self-discipline's at an all-time high. Because he is utterly rooted and grounded in his dependence upon God. You see that? And he proclaims the gospel and thousands of people respond and are saved. Jesus knows. He knows when you fail. He knows the trouble that's in your life right now. He knows the trouble that's around the corner coming. He knows that. And He gives us opportunity in that. He knows how to bring us back. But Caiaphas had the same opportunity. Caiaphas could have received a new bat. But he didn't. He didn't. Caiaphas refused to let go of what he had tried so hard to build. Caiaphas never figured out how to just open up his hands and to say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Caiaphas just kept fighting and clawing and clinging to His position. He allowed his fear to continue to drive him. And listen. Caiaphas had Jesus right in front of him. He was having a conversation face to face with Jesus. You ever been face to face with Jesus? Have you ever been in a situation where you're sitting in a weird shaped room in a weird kind of a bench with a really weird name? Listening to a weird guy talk about the gospel and realize That he's talking to you. He's talking to you. He's talking to you about your fear. He's talking to you about what you're holding on to. 
He's talking to you. He knows all your failures. He knows what's led you to this point. Let go. Open your hands. Don't compromise the principles of God to try to cling to what you think you need. How many people will miss heaven because they're afraid of losing something on earth? Oh, Caiaphas. The king of the universe sat right in front of you. Right there. And you missed it. Because you were so wrapped up in your kingdom. That you didn't even know. The kingdom of heaven was right there. 